The word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all of his saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts. We pray that you would bless it to our minds. We pray that we would be challenged by it and transformed by it. And we pray that you would help us to walk according to where you call us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. There's a typical order that Paul writes his epistles. There's a, 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 a usual structure that he uses. He typically begins with theology and then moves from theology into ethics. In fact, his ethics, you could say, are based in his theology. You might want to say that he, he deals with doctrine first and then he deals with practice. He talks about God's saving action and then our appropriate reaction. So if God has done this in our behalf, how then ought we to live? That's, that's typically how he structures his books. And Ephesians is no different. In fact, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first half of Ephesians, read almost like a liturgy. If you read them in one sitting, you've, you find that they are riddled with prayer and doxology. He begins his book with, with doxology and immediately moves into prayer here in this passage. He returns back to doxology. In fact, he kind of ends this chapter with, with a doxology, a, a praising of God, of sp speaking highly of who God is and how he has exalted Christ. But he'll move back into prayer and then back into doxology. And so these first few chapters of, of Ephesians are almost like a liturgy. And they're filled with what I call the classic Pauline diatribes. He begins a sentence and you get six or seven verses in and you realize there's not been a period yet. He's still going. And this is one such diatribe. 
His weaving of prayer and doxology in, in these first few chapters kind of reminds me in some way of our communion liturgy. We'll be celebrating communion in a couple of Sundays. And it's um, as we walk through that liturgy together, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I think, oh, oh, we're praying again. Because we're going through this, this scripture and doxology and prayer and back into to scripture and doxology and prayer. We're kind of weaving through a liturgy together. That's how these first few chapters sort of read in Ephesians. He's talking about what great things God has done for His people. It's rich with theology, rich with doctrine, rich with God's saving action. He has done so much to redeem us, so much to rescue us, so much to bring us back into the fold, to to bring us back into His family. He's done so much. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians of all of this much that God has done in their behalf through Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit to bring them in, to make of them a people, a people of God. Here, Paul is sharing with the Ephesians what he says he relentlessly prays in their behalf. He tells them that he's, he's not ceased praying for them, not ceased giving thanks for them as he lifts up his prayers to God. And what he relentlessly prays in their behalf, he says, is caused by a couple of things. What is the cause? Lindsay, I'm going to need your help. What is the cause of his prayer? He says first that the cause of his prayer is that they trust Jesus. Simple enough. They trust Jesus. He says he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. He has heard that they believe in him, that they, that they put their weight down upon Christ. But he says that the cause of his prayer for them is coupled with another cause. They trust Jesus, but they also love His people. He says, I've heard of your love for all of His saints. Now, you've, you've heard it said, in fact, when you were, if, if you've uh, um, been engaged for any period of time, you might have been told yourself that when you marry, you marry into your spouse's family. You marry the whole family. You marry the craziness you marry the insanity, you marry the, the, the fun, the adventure, you marry into whatever that family is. Paul seems to think that the Ephesians recognize that they have, in becoming followers of Jesus, they have married into a new family. They're a part of a new people, a new kind of people. A new people who live a different way. A new people who are marked by a different sign. And because of that, they love all of Christ's saints. Faith and love. Trusting Jesus and loving His people. Faith and love are inseparably two. 
They are bound together like a rope. Faith and love. You can't say that you trust Jesus without that trust being evidenced in love. In the same way that you can't really love without trusting. But Paul here says that they trust Jesus and love His saints. Christ and His church are inseparably two. In much the same way that Christ, when asked, what is the greatest command? He said, well, there are really two great commands. And they're inseparable from one another. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The second, he said, was like unto the first. In other words, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. Throughout the early church, it was, it was well understood that to love God was to necessarily love also His church. In fact, in the 200s, Cyprian of Carthage said, You can't call God your father and refuse to embrace the church as your mother. John and James kind of boiling down the testimony of Paul and Peter and all the other New Testament writers, they both declared that you cannot, you cannot both love Christ and neglect your family in Christ. To love Jesus is to love His people. In fact, Jesus told His disciples on the, the night that He was betrayed, His very last night with His disciples... One of the last things he told them, something of such importance to them as they were to understand themselves and their relationship to one another and their relationship to God and their relationship to the world, he says, others, the world, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you do great miracles, not if you heal the sick and raise the dead, not if you speak in other tongues, not if, if you pray really long and really hard, not if you know more scripture than someone else, but the world will know that you are my disciples by the way in which you love one another. Paul says, I've heard of your trust in Jesus I've heard of your love for all of His saints. And because of that, I lift up my prayers relentlessly to God in your behalf. And essentially, here's what I'm praying. He lays out for them the content of His prayer. He tells them, that he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, in the translation that I was reading, the New King James Version, which, by the way, if you've got the New King James Version and you sometimes are wondering, wait a minute, he didn't say exactly what mine says here. There's all sorts of magic going on in his head here. Um, sometimes when I'm when I'm reading, I'm uh, I'm trying to better translate uh, 
one of the things that, that we miss is in the New King James Version and most of the other translations, you get kind of some some you get kind of technical, you get kind of abstract. My translation says that he prays that God may give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, which sounds kind of mystical and mysterious and sounds, sounds kind of, uh, to be frank, high-flown and very theological. What Paul literally says is that he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, perfect, literally by getting to know God more. Not some hidden secretive knowledge, not, not, not some listing of facts, not, not some, even some catechism. I love catechism, but not, not even some catechism that they're to walk through, but by getting to know God more. He prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That they would become wise, that they would become ones before whom God has disclosed Himself and His will for their lives. But that can't happen apart from them getting to know God more. That can't happen in our lives without us getting to know God more. I'm reminded of Moses in the Old Testament. I was reading a a letter from missionary friends of ours just this week. In fact, just last night, uh, I was reading uh, a letter from Billy and Joanna Coppage. They're serving the Lord in Uganda, uh, West Africa, and they're uh, mutual friends with with the Mulhuizens over there. And they were commenting about a, a Bible study they were doing concerning Moses and how the text literally says of Moses that he met face to face with Yahweh. Literally nose to nose. You ever gotten nose to nose with someone? It's kind of uncomfortable. Especially if it's not your spouse or your, you know your your child or something, but even when it's your child, it gets kind of weird sometimes. Like, oh man. Around our house, we talk. We uh, in the mornings, we'll ask, "Have you brushed your teeth yet?" No, ma'am. Run back upstairs. Nobody wants to drag in breath. You know, to be nose to nose with someone is to be intimate with them. To be as close as can possibly be. Paul says that his prayer for the Ephesians is that they would be given by God a spirit of wisdom and revelation literally by getting to know Him more. He tells them then... With the eyes of their, under, of their hearts being enlightened, his prayer is that they would comprehend something. And not just something, but he lists three things that he wants them to comprehend. Getting to know God more, God revealing to them, a, the spirit, or giving to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Their, the eyes of their hearts are then enlightened, so that Paul then prays 
that they would comprehend, first of all, the hope to which God has called them. Hope is a very interesting quality. Hope is something that is often misunderstood. Typically, when people hear the word hope, they think kind of a hopeless hope, wishful thinking, hoping against all hope, hoping to win the lottery, hoping to make it big, hoping to write the bestseller. All those things that that seem so fleeting and impossible to get our hands around, like grains of sand that we're trying to hold and keep from slipping through our fingers. But biblical hope is substantive hope. It is hope that is rested upon something. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just hoping for the best. It It is a realistic expectation that is based upon what God has done in the past. God has rescued His people, therefore they can reasonably hope that He will rescue them in times to come. God has always been faithful to His people, therefore they can realistically hope that He will continue to be faithful. After all, He's never not been faithful. And Paul says that his desire and his prayer for the Ephesians is that they would comprehend that great hope to which God has called them. He has not called us to despair. He has not called us to hopelessness. He has not called us to to want. He has called us to great hope. And we are surrounded by by people who seem to have no hope. But in God, He calls us to hope. He prays also that they would comprehend the rich benefits of God's glorious inheritance among the saints. I don't know about you, but typically when I think of inheritance in our relationship to God, I typically think of my inheritance. I think of what awaits me, of what God's got in store for me, and I think, oh, goody, 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 goody gumdrops. Good things are going to happen, and, and you know, life beyond death is going to be great. But here, Paul is not talking about our inheritance. He's not talking about the inheritance of the saints. He's talking about us And the saints being an inheritance actually to God. Which kind of turns things on its head a little bit. The rich benefits of what God inherits in us. God delights in us. God looks to us and He longs. God looks to us and He says, goody, goody. It's almost as though Paul is 
trying to get the Ephesians to stop and to reevaluate things. I pray that you would just stop and begin to comprehend not just the great hope to which God has called you, but stop and begin to comprehend the rich benefits that God is inheriting in you and among you of what God is, is preparing for Himself among you. Not in a, in a selfish type way, not as though God is, is spoiled and grasping and is self-centered, but God delights in His people. And God is preparing His people to be a glorious inheritance for Himself. To live in fellowship with them. To know them. To be known by them. Paul says that his prayer in their behalf is that they would also comprehend the incomparable greatness of God's power available to those who believe. This great power, this incomparable power that is available to those who believe, he highlights by drawing their attention to two saving actions that God has done in Christ. For their behalf. The first is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He, he compares this power to that power. He, or he associates this power with the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And the second saving act that he connects it to is the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand. Where he lives forever to make intercession, the Hebrews writer said. So Paul tells us, Paul tells the Ephesians that the power that is available to the believer, to those who believe in God, those who trust in Christ, those who love Christ's people, the power that is available to them is the power that is able to raise the dead, raise the Messiah from the dead to life. Resurrection power and the power that is able to raise Him up into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. This is incomparable power. This is unheard of power. This is what Paul calls incomparable great power. So that's what's, what Paul is praying in their behalf. Paul ends with a few great Christological declarations. Kind of driving his prayer home in their minds. He says first, that Christ is infinitely superior to every ruler, every authority, every power, and every dominion. And that's something to bear in mind. Christ is infinitely superior. 
Nothing else even comes close to Him. And not only that, but Christ's name is greater than any other name. And Paul kind of doubles down and says, says, whether in this world or even in the world that is to come, the next world. He's got the greatest power, He is infinitely superior, and He's got the greatest name. Not just that He's got a cool name, not just that He's got a longer name or a shorter name, not that... But in His name, there is great power. His name, His his character, His person is greater than any other name, any other character, any other person. In any world, whether this or the next, he reminds them that the Father has placed all things under Christ's lordship. Because he is infinitely superior, because his name is greater than any other, the Father has seen fit to place all things, every single thing, under His Lordship. Jesus is Lord. But He ends by saying that the Father then has given Christ as head over all things to the church. So He comes full circle, if you will. He tells them that He's praying because of their great trust in Jesus and their love for all of Jesus' people. And now He has come full circle and He says that the Father has given this Christ, this One who is head over all things, this Lord, to the church. Which is His body which is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. How does this connect to us? Is this just kind of a model? Or is this perhaps an archetype of what God longs for His people. I think you know me well enough to know that I think that this is a model and an archetype of what God longs for His people. It seems that God longs for His people. The Ephesians, us here in this sanctuary, His people around the world, that He longs for His people to make room in their lives and room in their midst for what God can do. There's an awful lot of power language in this text. There's an awful lot of authority type language 
in this text. The term great, the term working, they're used multiple times in this text. And it seems that Paul is drawing the Ephesians' attention and God is drawing His people throughout the world their attention to what God is able to do if we will but yield ourselves and respond in a way similar to that way that the Ephesians have responded to God. And so I want to offer to you just three quick takeaways. The first takeaway is this, and this is hopefully very, very much hits close to home. Despair not. Jesus is Lord. There's an awful lot that surrounds us that gives calls for despair. Worries and concerns, troubles, chaos. We look at politics, we look at culture, we look at the way education is moving. We look at what's happening in the world around us, what we hear on the news, what we, what we see in our neighborhoods. And there's an awful lot of reason to be tempted toward despair. I think Paul would have us believe that God is bigger than that. God is bigger than those things that can cause despair. God is bigger than those things which worry us. He's bigger than those things which battle against us and wage war against us. All things are under Christ. His name is above all names. Any name that can be named in this world or the next, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. If you'll let me say it, Jesus is better. He can handle it. Now that doesn't mean that we're called to just live in some sort of detached Passive, we do nothing to, to change politics. We do nothing to, to interact with culture. We, we let education and academia just go wherever it wants to go. It, it's, it's not that sort of detached sentimentality. But it is a firm and calm and measured hope in Christ that leads us not to despair because Jesus is Lord. But the second takeaway that I think we can, we can receive from this text is dream big. Jesus has big plans. And not only that, He's got limitless power. And we ought to dream big. Dream big about what God is able to do in our lives. Dream big about what He's able to do among us as His people. And dream big about what He is able to do through us as His church. Because He's got big plans. We used to read a book to our kids called Big Plans and it was kind of a constant refrain, a little kid's book. I got big plans, I say. I haven't read that in a while. But Jesus has big plans. He wants to do great things. 
But he's not just wishfully thinking. He's not just dreaming up plans that can never be substantiated. He has limitless power and can substantiate those plans in our lives if we will but make ourselves ready. And so that's why we need to make room for what God can do. Because God can do all things. And so the third takeaway is draw near. When the world's going crazy, when life is filled with disaster, when life is crushing and disappointing and despairing, that's the time to draw near. Jesus wants us to trust Him. And He wants us to love His church. To love His people. To love one another. And love is not just some wimpy, spineless, sentimental feeling that we muster up for one another. Love is real. Love is tangible. Love is expressive and it's active. And so our trusting in Jesus and our loving of His church ought to be in both word and deed. Not, oh, I trust you, Jesus, but I'm not going to open my life to you, really, because that's for me. I'll trust you to get me to heaven one day. And not, oh, well, no, I love, I love my church. But I do nothing to protect it, nothing to defend it, nothing to build it, nothing to help it and strengthen it. Draw near. We make room for those great things that God is able to do in our lives by not trying to handle life ourselves, not pulling back from our relationship with Christ, not pulling back from our relationship with His people and trying to figure things out ourselves, we make room for what God is able to do in our lives by drawing near to those sources of strength, by drawing near to the one who's got big plans and limitless power, by drawing near to the one who is Lord over all. And we can't draw near to Jesus without drawing near to one another as His people. God can do all things. There is no problem too great. There is no situation too all-encompassing. There is no trouble too breaking that God can't, through it, and in the midst of it, keep His people and do great and miraculous things through them if we will but trust and love. We've got reason to have hope. 
God is doing something among us that He sees as a thing of beauty and He longs for as an inheritance. And He has equipped us with the power that is able to raise the dead, the power that is able to take down world powers, that is able to raise up a people scattered throughout the globe who are changing the world. Will we make room in ourselves for what He can do? Or will we not make room? Or will we think that what we can do is all there is? Will we make room for what only He can do? That's the question. Let's pray.